Welcome to the New Books Network. Venture capitalists are often thought of as rich, too rich, many would say, uh, by providing capital to back up the ideas and efforts of others, they can make absurd amounts of money. But there's another way of looking at it. Venture capitalists take huge risks and produce great benefits. Many of the companies we rely on today began with a punt by a venture capitalist. Well, these are some of the issues discussed by Sebastian Malaby in his book, The Power Game. Welcome, Sebastian. Great to be with you, Erin. I think you should start, as you do in the book, with this amazing story of artificial food, uh, because it's a very good example of what a venture capitalist can do and the way they have to think and what can come out of it. Sure. Well, the story about um, artificial food is a company called Impossible Food, Um, is that there was this uh, geneticist at Stanford who took a sabbatical one day and decided to devote it to figuring out if you could build a hamburger with no meat in it that tasted like a real hamburger, that behaved like it when you put it on a barbecue, that had drippy, oozy bits that fell onto the grill below and sizzled and smelt like a, a real hamburger, but was entirely made of plants. And so he he figured out that you could get a sort of heme, um, like the hemoglobin in blood, which creates some of that sizzling smell and the switch from the red meat to the brown when it's cooked. You could extract that from clover plants. So he sliced up some clover um, in his back garden, extracted the juices, and he was, you know, fiddling about doing some experiments, but to really scale it, he needed a proper lab and some capital. So he took this idea, you know, he went on his bike to one of the nearby venture capital shops because he was in Stanford. You know, that's where the headquarters of global venture capital is, fortuitously. And he went to see a character called Vinod Kosler, who is a well-known, very ambitious sort of, uh, you know, moonshot type of venture capitalist. And he said, look... I'm going to get rid of the meat industrial complex. If we want to solve climate change, we have to stop deforestation to do agriculture. And uh, tons of cattle all over the land masses of the Amazon is not a good idea for climate perspective. And so back me and I will make you more insanely rich than you already are. And furthermore, we will, you know, put the the meat business uh, underwater. And the venture capitalist, Vino Costa, looks at this sort of shaggy-haired professor and says, okay, this has got, you know, only a one in hundred shot of actually working. But if the consequence of it, you know, the consequences of it working would be so enormous, both in terms of profits and in terms of social impact, that I'm willing to bet on one versus a hundred odds, because the payoff is more than one versus a hundred. Exactly. So, I mean, that's often the decision they're taking. It's very unlikely and presumably lots fail, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, in a normal venture capital portfolio, you make, you know, maybe 10 bets and perhaps seven or eight essentially lose money, go to zero uh, because the startup doesn't work. It's very normal for startups to fail. And how has that the food one worked out? That one, in fact, you know, there is a sort of bias of the winners in this kind of storytelling because the ones that fail typically you never hear of them again. And indeed, you know, the people who started them are off doing some other project that they've dreamt up and they don't really want to talk about the failure from before. Maybe it's not surprising to hear that this is a story uh, precisely because it is one that surfaced about a success and they did indeed develop 
a succulent, juicy uh, plant burger sizzled on the grill, rather like a hamburger. And they started selling it in restaurants across the US. Really? And have you had one? I have, yeah. It's pretty good. Between you, me and the lamppost, Erin, I mean, the reality about hamburgers, let's face it, if you slather enough mustard and ketchup and so forth on it, <laughs> you know, whether it's plant or meat, who cares? That's not what goes, well, maybe that was what he's thinking. <laughs> anyway, so, so how much money did they make? Multiples and multiples of uh, the original capital uh, that was invested. I don't know whether, I'm not sure if it's 100 times the money or, or 500 times the money, but certainly enough uh, for everybody to be very happy. Right. So you mentioned this all began in uh, California, or that you know it's 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 a big thing in California. And in the book, you describe that whole story of why that happened, and you give the conventional explanation and the real explanation. It's very interesting. So can you can you give us both versions of why it all ended up in in California? When I first started going out to Silicon Valley to research this book, people would tell me all kinds of stories about why Silicon Valley had been so dominant in applied science and startups, you know, for, for 50 years. And one theory is that it's Stanford University is so great and they let you spin out ideas from Stanford. And so that's, it's really Stanford Valley, not, not Silicon Valley. And the problem with that theory is that, you know, it's nonsense because in the 60s and 70s and 80s, when this whole story gathered steam at the beginning, MIT in Boston was a much better engineering university than Stanford. And so, you know, doesn't really make sense. Secondly, people said to me, it's about defense contracts. Um, you know, tons of military procurement went to companies in California. And that's why the tech ecosystem got started there. Problem with that story is that most of the tech, which was of military relevance in California, was actually in Los Angeles in Southern California, because that's where the aerospace uh, businesses were headquartered. And furthermore, that actually more defense contracts, again, went to the MIT Boston corridor. The military industrial complex of the 50s and 60s was really an alliance between the Pentagon and MIT in Boston. So then I was sort of fishing around for what was the real reason why Stanford, uh, why, sorry, Silicon Valley emerged dominant. And the theory I came up with is that when you go and interview venture capitalists from Boston from that period, they say things like, I had a very successful career. I made 40 different startup bets and I didn't lose money on any of them. And if you said that in Silicon Valley, they just laugh at you for being too risk averse. If you don't lose money on any bets, it's because you waited until these companies were already established and then you did an investment and you called it venture capital. It's not real venture capital where you go to a founder with an idea, you know, I'm going to make this plant burger taste like a hamburger. I haven't actually done it yet, but trust me, give me the money and then I'll do it. That kind of real adventurous capital was exclusive to uh, Northern California. And I think that's why uh, it became Startup Central. That's why Silicon Valley, you know, dominated, but first of all, Silicon, in, as in Silicon um, Semiconductors, and then all these other technologies from routing equipment through the internet, through, you know, the mobile phone platform and so forth. So you're almost saying it's like a cultural thing that just in that environment, for some reason, I mean, I don't know if you know the reason, there were people who were willing to take risks in a, in a different way to, to other locations. Yeah, I think at the beginning, there was one person, Arthur Rock, the person who founded or sort of co-founded 
Fairchild Semiconductor in 1957 by doing the investment in that uh, sort of grandfather company in the valley. And he did this, you know, for whatever reason. I mean, you know, because he was a strange person or whatever. And then he was successful with it. And that role model of success is what starts the snowball rolling. So I think you can say that the, the very early original story is luck, but then there's path dependency that follows from the luck uh, as others um, see that you can make money in this way. Uh, and they start to also invest like that. And then it becomes less risky for an entrepreneur with an idea to say, well, I'm going to build a company because there's somebody there who will give you the money for that, somebody there who will introduce you to the lawyer that you need to incorporate the company and then introduce you to 20 engineers so you can pick the favorite five and start to build your engineering team and then introduce you to customers. And then when you need more capital, introduce you to uh, other people who will write you more checks. And so, you know, being an entrepreneur is super risky and it will always be risky, but it's rather less risky if you have the uh, support of an experienced venture capitalist who kind of plugs you into a network. Yeah. I mean, given that the companies that have come out of Silicon Valley are so massive and so important to the American economy, you could argue that they have helped America sustain its you know, superpower status for a few more years than it otherwise would have done. Uh, you would think that governments all over the world would be desperate to recreate those conditions. Are you, are you aware of governments consciously trying to look at it and say, we must do something like that? Yes, very much so. I mean, Israel is the most successful example where they looked at Silicon Valley and said, right, you know, we're going to do that too. And the government subsidized the first round of venture capital funds by, you know, saying, look, if you raise some private capital, we'll top you up with some government money, but we won't expect a return on the government money. So you get to keep all the return. They did that in round one of these, I think it was seven different uh, venture capital companies. And then when those first um, funds succeeded and made money, the government then said, well, you're on your own now, carry on. And that worked terrifically well. I mean, venture capital, and there's more VC dollars per capita in Israel than in any other country in the world. And now the model is spreading. I mean, Singapore basically went off to Israel and, and got advice and did the same thing. Um, it's spreading in India and Southeast Asia. It's coming to Europe. London now is a bit of a hub for venture capital, partly just servicing the rest of Europe, but also doing deals in in Britain. It's interesting that uh, BioNTech, the German pharmaceutical research company that was partnered with Pfizer, making the first one of the first COVID vaccines, you know, they've decided to move their research team from Germany to Britain. Uh, and so I think that, you know, both in the medical tech side and in the AI infotech side, there's actually a decent ecosystem in Britain and venture capital is arising to support it. Yeah, let's just deal with the moral question, because, I mean, that's something you're obviously aware of through the book, because you know, on the one hand, in a lot of the interviews I do in this series say that inequality is the source of a lot of the problems we're facing now, you know, this extreme inequality. And venture capital, in a way, really represents that because people make quite fabulous amounts of money. And yet you make the point in the book that the benefits for customers of all these companies is considerable, you know, and these companies are innovative and they bring us all services we want uh, and even rely on now. So how do you, how do you, do, how do you balance the, the moral issues? I think, you know, my policy position is you tax 
the venture capitalists and the entrepreneurs who do fabulously well more so that you socialize some of the upside. But you don't muck about with the actual venture capital process because that is extremely good for innovation, for creating the industries of the future. And you know, if you want a dynamic economy, which I think we probably do, because otherwise, where are you going to get the money which you redistribute? Then, you know, you, we, we should be pro-venture capital, but then pro-redistributing the fruits of venture mm. capital. Which but that bit never happens, does it? <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, you know, it's a good, it's a perfectly sort of solid position you've got, but somehow, maybe through their their power, lobbying power, they they never end up being taxed much. I think that's a bit fatalistic. I mean, you know, the what's the marginal rate of tax in in the UK? Forty five percent or something. So people, yeah, but these these all these people, uh, you know, they find ways around it, don't they? So, yeah, they're famous. The, a lot of the companies they support certainly, and I imagine some of the venture capitalists too, you know, won't end up paying a lot of tax because they've they've got good accountants, basically. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I think we share the same objective, and maybe I'm just a bit more optimistic that sometimes one can achieve some of it. You know, inequality, at least in the US, this is not a widely known thing, but you know, it it, it got really much worse between the late 70s and kind of the Obama administration time. But then when Obama came in and did, you know, an extension of Medicaid, increasing the medical safety net in the system and a few other um, expansions of programs to help people at the lower end, inequality at the bottom actually went down. So I, I, I have more faith in the ability of government programs to help. And I think, you know, if... Keir Starmer becomes the next Prime Minister of Britain. Um, hopefully, he will figure out a good way of both putting more money into needed causes and protecting economic growth. Yep. And and what about uh, the, the the impact on this whole sort of sector of digitisation? Because I mean that made a huge difference to it, didn't it? And a lot of the companies, that, yeah, the massive companies that have come out of it have have basically been digital companies. The digitisation of the economy is a huge theme across countries. And venture is certainly part of that because it's backing the creation of these digital companies. And some of the time that looks rather ugly, as in when you have Facebook doing um, fake news. Other times when we're all locked down and we're able to, you know, work remotely, it looks rather better. So, you know, I, I can I can see both sides of the uh, pluses and minuses of a digitized economy. You're right that venture capital is central to its creation. Yeah, I mean, but we're just trying to get to the point that the startup costs in that world are quite low, right? Because it's 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 coding and it's and it's ideas. Is that fair? And and that's why venture capitalists were able to help those people. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you, one should remember though the history of venture capital before the arrival of the internet, when most big successes in venture capital were things like semiconductor companies, Apple computer, uh, Cisco, which made hardware that connected up the computers, the routers. Um, so, uh, you know, it can do hard tech, hardware. It doesn't have to be software. And we're now moving into the artificial intelligence era, when although AI is in some sense software, and you could say, well, that's another example of how with relatively little money, a team can get started. But to train these models, you generally need massive amounts of compute. And that is very expensive, buying 
you know, a whole server farm full of NVIDIA chips is is very capital intensive. It costs $100 million to train ChatGPT, for example. So, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag when we look at the AI, whether that's a cheap thing to get started in or whether it's expensive if you're going to actually train models. One of the one of the fascinating things about this, I mean, like all yeah, and the hedge funds and all the rest of them, is is whether it is luck that people tend, you know, the same people tend to make the right decisions, or whether it is judgment. And your books, like others in this respect, that when you when you look at the factors behind the successful ones, they don't seem consistent. Is that your observation? I mean, it, it seems there's not a sort of formula. Part of the sort of intellectual challenge with this book was to decide precisely this question, you know, how much luck is there and how much is there skill? And I was haunted by the terrific film, um, Searching for Sugarman, you know, which tells the story of that uh, American singer who released a couple of albums in the US, they didn't sell and his career went down the drain and he ended up working on, you know, wrecking teams, you know, knocking down old buildings in Detroit. But meanwhile, unbeknownst to him, some tourists had come to the US, bought his albums, liked them, taken them to South Africa and Australia. And he had become kind of a household name in those places because his music just took off and sold like hotcakes. The record company was stealing the royalties and not telling him that. But, uh, you know, many years later, a film crew uncovered this whole story. And um, so there you are. You have the same artist who is deemed useless and a failure in the US, but a total hit on the level of Bob Dylan or something in South Africa and Australia. And that just shows you the role of luck in, in life, right? And so to what extent, the question is, what extent venture capital is, is like searching for sugar man? And you can't rule out some of that. But on balance, what struck me when I went to see the um, practitioners who had been at the top of the game for you know, decades is that they generally did have a story about what they were doing, which was cleverer and different to others. They didn't all have the same story, you're right. But they would say, for example, okay, well, what we did is we thought about behavioral economics and we realized that we have all these biases in the way we make decisions. And so we systematically thought about those biases in our decision-making when we decide whether or not to back a certain startup. And we tried to correct them. For example, we know that we have loss aversion, meaning that we will gamble more to avoid a loss than we will to get the upside from a bet. And of course, when you're backing startups, it's all about gambling for the upside. So we're going to require that when somebody in our partnership is proposing an investment, they have to write a section in the memo that dreams about how fantastic this company could be if everything went right. And the point is you have to write it down because if you don't write it down, human beings tend to be embarrassed about saying how excited they are because in real life something goes a bit wrong and then you look like an idiot because you overhyped it. So they require you to write it down so that the dream is on the, you know, is, is, is on the page. So anyway, so I, I felt like as I spent, you know, four or five years talking to the practitioners, you could see skill in some cases. And there's also the case where you, you get somebody who inherits a very successful partnership and then manages to screw it up and they become totally unsuccessful. And by meeting them and talking to people who worked with them, you understand exactly what they did wrong and they go from hero to zero for very good reasons. So it, yeah, I, I think my sense from immersing myself in that world 
was that there is skill that can be described. Yeah, one of the, one of the sort of interesting things about your book is you did get access to to, to these people who, who are not all very media friendly, so it was an unusual thing. And so, did you when you met them all? Did you think? Yeah, I, I imagine they're all interesting, you know, great stories, and sort of taking big risks. Did they have any common traits? Would you say? I mean, could 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 you could you describe what makes what sort of personality makes a good venture capitalist? Yeah, one is that you've got to be an extrovert. You've got to like other people. You've got to like, you know, being in meetings uh, and and getting on people's wavelength. Uh, you could describe a venture capitalist as somebody who gets up in the morning, has breakfast with one person, and then has fourteen cups of coffee, hopefully decaffeinated, uh, before they go to bed. Because the job is you meet potential entrepreneurs who might want to start a company and decide if you want to back them. And then you meet the guys that you backed a few months ago to see if you could help them. And then you meet a bunch of engineers or whoever who might be good recruits for the companies that you backed a couple of months ago because they're looking to expand. And then you meet the you know salesperson they're going to recruit. I mean, it's all about you know, being in the network and mingling. And it's totally different. Now, I wrote a book a dozen years ago about hedge funds. There, you had these introverts who came up with some story about, you know, what stock was going up, what was going down, or which currency was going to crash or whatever it was. And they kind of hid behind their bank of computer screens and just traded it without talking to other people. And so when Lewis Bacon, one of these characters in my book, you know, did very well and bought himself a private island, the joke was, you know, he was so insular already that it made no difference. You couldn't be that insular if you were a venture capitalist because it's all about, you know, person-to-person networking. And that's partly because, you know, when you're doing hedge fund stuff, you're buying and selling stuff that's traded on a market, whether that's a derivative, a stock, a bond, a currency. And you don't need to, you know, have a coffee with the currency and say, excuse me, I'd like to buy some of you. Uh, whereas in venture capital what you're trying to invest in is somebody's company. So you do definitely have to have multiple coffees with them and get them comfortable with the idea that they're going to sell you a bunch of shares. You're going to go on their board. You're going to be kind of quasi-married for several years and you better get on. Um, And so trust and that human element is super important in venture capital. Right. And and, and things that aren't important, it seems, because successful companies have a range of different policies on things like, do they stay small and just have five big bets in a way? Or do they have, you know, 100 bets? Or do they mentor their, their, the people they're investing in? Or do they just say, we're leaving you alone, get on with it? All those sort of tactics don't seem to have much bearing on success. Is that right? You're right. There's a distribution. People do it differently. Um, so yes, I basically agree with what you just said. Um, you you do need to have a have a strategy and stick with it. You know, people get in trouble when they say they're going to specialize in investing in biotech, and then all of a sudden they have coffee with somebody who's doing the next kind of semiconductor, and they go for it. That's not a good. <laughs> you're likely to be investing in something you don't understand. But but there are multiple strategies that have been shown to be uh, successful. So I agree that there's there's room for. Lots of different uh, venture capitalists, just like there are, you know, room for lots of different entrepreneurs. You've mentioned what's happening in Israel, uh, and we've talked about California. So, what about China? What 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 is the government's attitude? They've had some, yeah, massively rapidly growing companies. Um, yeah, some they've had some very big companies that have grown very rapidly. Was venture capital involved in that? 
Yes, and this is the thing that surprised me the most uh, when I was doing the book research because I'd read these uh, accounts of China's technology uh, successes and usually they say, well, the government was quite important in supporting this idea and thank you, Mr. Government. And and the, the reason for this is that the people who know most about Chinese technology startups are the people who are doing the Chinese technology startups and they write these books and they have to be polite to the Chinese government because otherwise they'll be in trouble. But when you actually go and track down the origin stories of Baidu and Alibaba and Tencent and Sino and Sohu and NetEase and all these early Chinese internet companies, what you discover is kind of the opposite. In other words, they got their early money from American-style venture capitalists who showed up with Silicon Valley lawyers and wrote contracts which had dispute settlement under New York law with a parent company in the Cayman Islands and an aspiration to go public in New York on the NASDAQ exchange. So the whole thing was the American playbook, very much private sector, very much venture capital, you know, sort of put on a magic carpet and flown over to Hong Kong and Shenzhen and Beijing and Shanghai. And and that's what made China's tech ecosystem work. The government was indifferent. The government's position was, we want to build strategic technology like semiconductors. If you want to go and do you know, some consumer-facing internet thing like Alibaba, where you're going to, you know, have, you know, consumer goods or whatever being, who cares, you know, and they just, they just turn their backs on all that, which is why it was given the oxygen to succeed in a private sector way. Today, what's different is that the Chinese government has expanded its definition of what it cares about. And it does actually care about Alibaba and Tencent and Baidu and all these characters. And it is breathing down their necks. And Jack Ma, the founder of um, Alibaba, famously had to disappear and go off the radar for a couple of years because the government was clamping down on him. And so the prognosis is probably that China, in technology terms, is going to do less well in the future than it has in the past because the government is paying attention. And that's not a good thing because it restricts the kind of freedom of the entrepreneurs to have some wacky new idea and go and pursue it uh, because the government's telling them, hey, you know, focus on what we need for military development, like, you know, um, surveillance AI. That's so interesting because, you know, there's, there are lots of articles now saying that China's, uh, yeah, the Communist Party is is not managing the economy in a way that will lead to the kind of growth rates they've had. And you're, you're, you're saying that's, you know, your, your specialism, venture capital is another part of that story. Yeah, agreed. And by the way, I also agree with the with the bigger picture. I mean, I think, you know, I spent three years earlier in my career in Japan. And uh, Japan in 1993, when it was heading into that deflationary sort of debt trap, is rather like China in 2023, in my view. It, it seems there's more and more money available for this. Is that Would that be right? Yeah, that's right. We're in a, you know, what they call a cyclical correction. <laughs> in other words, there was a bubble and it burst. And that was the COVID experience, right? So in 2021 and 2022, enormous, enormous amounts of money went into venture capital. And there was this view that, you know, the sky was the limit. And then that was corrected the prices fell. Actually, this was in 2022. So 2020, 2020 and 2021 was the big surge in valuations in startups. And then it came down in 22, and it's still um, coming down in 23. And so right now, that's put a dampener on fundraising. Um, but if you step back and say, how is 2023 compared to, I don't know, 2015, it would still be much higher. 
So we've come off the big peak, but the secular trend is definitely that more money is being raised by venture capital. It's spreading uh, geographically. You know, China was one example we talked about, Israel, Europe, Southeast Asia, India, even Latin America. I've been contacted by venture capital outfits in West Africa who have read my book and are trying to do the same thing in Nigeria. So yeah, it's really going global. And my theory about this is that, you know, at different stages in economic history, you get a particular sort of financial innovation that is that sort of fits with where the technology is. So if you think about you know the Industrial Revolution, which suddenly made it worthwhile to have a bigger company because you could do scale, right? You could have a bigger factory because you could have electricity in it and make things on a bigger scale, and then you could ship it around in in on on rail and and have a sort of you know a scale your customer base because transportation had been. Uh, transformed by railways. So what was the financial innovation that fitted that? It was the joint stock limited liability company invented in the 1860s in Britain and then spread to America. And so then you get, you know, stock markets, and this is a way to kind of do big company capitalism fitting with the Industrial Revolution. Then a while later, you get the personal computer, which means you can basically fire a whole bunch of uh, clerical workers in the big company And to make the firing happen, you get the junk bond and the leveraged buyout, whereby these ruthless corporate raiders borrow a whole bunch of money with junk bonds and go off and buy some company and fire, you know, some astounding number of employees because they've all got computers now and they don't need those employees. So the innovation financially that fitted with the personal computer was the junk bond. And now you're in a world where software and other kinds of intellectual property are a large part of the value of the economy. And to develop those ideas and sort of prove their viability, you need to run iterative experiments, which we call startups. And the way to get those startups started is venture capital. So I think it's kind of, you know, we're in this intangible capital economy and venture capital is perfectly suited to that. And that's why it's spreading all over the world. Well, if it's so solidly based, as you've just suggested, you know, that it's, it, it does meet the needs of the time, then presumably you think these, th- these, these venture capitalists will continue to succeed for you know, some time. Yeah, I do think that. And I think it, it, they'll succeed on a bigger scale in more different kinds of technology. And they will go, you know, into more geographies, they'll go global even more than it has already. I think the one caveat here, and this is very much, you know, early to to know what's going to happen. But one of the interesting things about artificial intelligence is the question, you know, do startups um, do well in that? Or is it something where you need to be a massive, great tech behemoth, like Microsoft or, or Google, to have the resources to afford all those semiconductors to train the models? And I think the jury's out on that. That's the only threat I can think of to the prediction that venture capital will become more and more important in the years ahead. So having done this work and met all these people, did you leave thinking, I could do this? You know, if I if I had 100 million in a bank or whatever you need to be, well, how much do you need to be a venture capitalist? Well, I think what you need to be a venture capitalist is, is sort of two or three things. You, you need... Um, on top of that extrovert character, uh, which I mentioned earlier, you you need some sort of differentiating skill that's relevant to building a tech company. 
So that could be that you're an engineer and you actually understand the tech, or it could be that you've seen how you uh, sell uh, technology products. So you're a marketing person who specializes in technology marketing, or it could be that you come out of, you know, a talent search company, you know, sort of a job headhunting kind of background, and you're very, very good at finding the best and most skilled people to put into startups to make them take off. So there's different skills that you can bring to the table. I'm not sure that my background in writing books is a central skill that you need to build companies. <laughs> Did anyone try to recruit you? <laughs> people have said this to me as a joke. Oh, you know so much of this. You know, you, know, you should you should talk to us. You know, we're always open. And I say, yeah, you're joking, aren't you? And they don't really uh, persist at that point. <laughs> Well, anyway, thank you very much. It's a very, very interesting book and a very good topic. And Because no one else has really done this, have they? No, I was amazed when I um, started doing the research and, you know, I always go through the process of looking for the next book topic and typically I throw away two or three ideas before I hit on the right one. And in this case, you know, one, one of the tests you've got to pass is to make sure that you're not writing a book that's already been written. And I was astonished to find that it's a complete gap on the shelf that nobody had really done a history and grappled with what makes it tick, notwithstanding its central importance to inventing the future. Yeah, and that's presumably because these venture capitalists tend to not see any point in doing publicity, right? So they're not putting themselves out there in that way. Yeah, so you have to be, you know, obstinate and persistent, which I am. I mean, when I first went to see Sequoia, which is the top venture capital partnership in the world you know i had a cunning sort of friend of a friend of a friend introduction to the one of the top people there so i thought great you know i'm in the door already this is only my first trip to silicon valley here i am you know this is you know this is going well and i was firmly told by this person listen nice to have coffee but if you think we're actually going to talk to you properly about your book you know get lost because why would we share our secrets and you know Everybody wants to put money in our fund any already, so we don't need to market ourselves or become more famous. So get lost. And uh, I went away, and uh, instead of getting lost, I started to speak to every single person who used to work for Sequoia, uh, people who had been at other venture capital companies and sat on the board of a startup next to another board member from Sequoia, or entrepreneurs who had been backed by Sequoia. And then finally, I. Um, sort of tracked down one of Sequoia's major uh, customers, in other words, the big university uh, endowments that put money into venture capital. And uh, I became friends with this endowment and they said, well, how can we help you on your project of writing about venture capital? And I said, well, Sequoia is giving me some uphill. And they said, okay. And they emailed, I remember this very clearly, they emailed the head of Sequoia uh, on, a, on a weekend and within about 10 minutes, this person got back to me and said, how can I help? And that was how I got in the door a second time. And this time they realized that I'd spoken to all their former employees and competitors and so forth. <laughs> and better to, you know, better to talk to me than not to talk to me. Yeah. Well, just, just before we close, there's one thing I hadn't appreciated, actually, that um, universities who are fabulously rich in the United States with, you know, what sort of portfolios of 20, 30 billion sort of thing, they're, they're, that's, they're the source of a lot of the money, are they? They are the, a big source of um, investment money, both for hedge funds and for venture capital, because they just are willing to take more risk and sort of try out novel financial methods. I guess they're less in the public eye in a way than um, a pension fund, which, you know, has to sort of look cautious because they're 
this, the custodians of future retirees' money. And, and so and for whatever reason, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, um, they've always been willing to be forward-leaning in the new kind of financial devices that they put money into. 